Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 1 and reading through to verse 11. Uh, and it's entitled Ananias and Sapphira. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some money, some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposable? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said. This, "'That is the price.' Peter said to her, "'How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord?' Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Thank you, Dan. Um, so we're journeying through the book of Acts and the story of the early church there. And, and so far the story has been of, of outpourings of the Spirit and of signs and wonders of, of the gospel advancing of thousands coming to faith in the name of Jesus. And, and even last week when we talked about opposition and persecution, uh, the tone was of the church responding with joy and celebration for suffering for the name of Jesus. And, and so today's passage is a, a jarring interruption actually in the middle of the story we told last week um, and so we didn't if you thought oh is he going to skip that passage last week well here today we're in it um, and it is a jarring interruption it's a an uncomfortable passage in the storyline of Acts it's an uncomfortable moment uh, in the story of the early church particularly when we think about the prevailing uh, message of grace and forgiveness throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospel, this Gospel of grace and forgiveness, this kind of raises a flag where we often will say, but, but what about Ananias and Sapphira? God is a forgiving God, a gracious God, that, that uh, God's covenant is of grace, He is of love, and then the flag raises up sometimes, but what about Ananias and Sapphira? What about those people who drop dead because of something to do with money? Don't worry, we won't be taking up another offering uh, after the sermon this morning. If you, if you can say, oh, I didn't put my whole wallet's contents in. Um, it's an uncomfortable story. It's an uncomfortable passage. And, and to be honest, as a pastor planning to do a series on Acts and reading through it and immersing myself in it, and especially when we're not doing every single passage through Acts, we're doing the big themes, the big moments, there's a thought in my head of, do I have to do that one? Is that, is that really... Uh, is, is that, well, if the major theme is grace, can we just skip past it? Um, and so there's that temptation to, to not actually deal with this passage. There's a temptation to skip over it or downplay it and say, yeah, but it's just one incidence and, and, and you know, it's a transition period. Uh, there's a temptation to explain it away. But I want to suggest this morning that it's actually a crucial moment in the story of the early church that it's a critical moment in the, the development of the early church and it's a crucial moment that we need to pay attention to for ourselves, our own lives of faith and the life of our own church. And, and so uh, my suggestion this morning is that the best thing to do with this uncomfortable story is to dive as deeply into it as possible, to, to understand it, to seek its message for the church uh, of its day when it happened, but also for, for us. The, the best approach to any uncomfortable story is to understand what it means. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to unpack it deeply and I'm going to pray and invite you to pray with me. Whether you've been someone who's skipped over it, you've never heard this story before, uh, they've heard the story, but I was talking to someone this morning about They said, what passage are you preaching on? I said, Ananias and Sapphira, and I've never heard of it. And so whether it's, it's something you've never heard before, 
you, you've skipped over it when you've read through Acts, you've heard something about it, or, or whether it's something that you just, this is your favourite story, you love when people drop dead because they do wrong things. Um, wherever you are on that spectrum, uh, I invite you to join me to pray and together we're going to look at this story with fresh eyes and we're going to seek to understand not just the story, but what does God want us to learn from it. Um, so pray with me now and then we'll jump into the story. So Father, I pray that you give us fresh eyes of whether we've been skip over us or this is our favourite story in the entire Bible. I pray that you would give us fresh eyes, not just human eyes to understand, but, but eyes uh, to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand in a spirit-empowered way this morning. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us a deeper understanding of this story than we've ever had before. And I pray that you would give us a deeper understanding of how and what we should do to respond to it in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. So to begin the story properly, we actually need to go back a few verses. And um, this is one point where uh, it's a good point to remind you that the, the text of the Bible is original. It was inspired by God, written by, by men, but inspired by God. It was originally written in Greek. Uh, and in the original text, there was no chapters, there was no verses, and there was no headings. And in fact, in the original Greek, there wasn't even any spaces. But that's, that's uh, ancient Greeks for you. They just didn't want to put spaces. There was no capitals. There was no punctuation. Uh, and so whenever you see a chapter uh, or, or a heading in your Bible, that's just the trans, translator's way, the, the modern English translator's way of kind of breaking it up um, so that we can understand it and so that we can reference it. Uh, but sometimes those breaks are in a really bad spot because the story doesn't actually begin in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, it begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. But, but this moment, this story sits in a context that's really important for us to understand. And so if we go back a few verses, we, we get this summary beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 about the, the life of the early church and it was, a, it was a community in which there was no one who had need for anything, that there was no one, whether they were poor or rich, that, that lacked uh, food and clothing and shelter. And the reason that there was no one in that community that lacked anything was because that often or from time to time it says that people would sell their property and they would take the money they got from it and they would lay it at the feet of the apostles, the leaders of the church, and, and that would be distributed to those who had need. And so that's the context that this story fits in, but there's more to it than that. There's also uh, one particular person named Barnabas who's highlighted as a, as a, as a special example. Uh, we mentioned Barnabas last week, and as the story of Acts goes on, Barnabas is a key figure in the life of the church. And so Barnabas, is. this is the first time we meet him, but he's highlighted here, he's recognised, he's honoured, he's, he's given glory in a sense for, for his sacrificial blessing of the church. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 to 37, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so we talked about last week how in Jewish culture, if you were the son of something, it meant that that was a characteristic that you expressed to the extreme. So Barnabas was an extreme encourager. And so Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles' feet. And so the church was a church at the time where, where people would sell their possessions, bring the, the money, put it at the apostles' feet for distribution to the poor and needy. And Barnabas is highlighted as a special example of that. That, that Barnabas is honoured amongst the church. He's, he becomes a leader amongst the church, not just because he, he gave money, because of who he was as an encourager, but, but Barnabas is honoured and recognised for, for his gift to the church. And so then it's in that context that we, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, of, of their act of giving as well. And says, so it says, now a man, as Dan Reed together with his wife, also sold a, a piece of property. And, and so this is a story that is meant to be read together with what happens before it. I thank the, the translators and the interpreters for their headings and their, their chapter breaks. It helps me find where we're up to. We, we don't think that they're, they're, they've done a disservice, but sometimes it's good just to read what comes before to see if it's meant to be welded together. And so these stories go together. This is uh, one person did this and another person also did this kind of story. But we might ask, what did they do that was so wrong? 
just to read again, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so we might ask, what, what did they do that was so bad? What did they do that was so offensive to Peter as uh, one of the key leaders of the church? What did they do that caused such a sudden and dramatic consequence? Because, you know, we're familiar with this story. If we are familiar with this story, we think, well, yeah, that, you know, that was appropriate and right. But if we put this story into our, our church today, we'd probably think, well, they gave a whole bunch of money to the church. They kept, they kept some back and, 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 and maybe there was a bit of a lie in there, but, but didn't they mostly do a good thing? Didn't they mostly do a good thing and somehow they've been punished for it? What did they do that was so bad? I was reading and, and listening to some stuff the other day about a thing called moral licensing that it's a psychological thing that, that when we do something good, psychologically we often give ourselves then permission to be you know, bad in other ways. And, and so this is kind of a sense of like, in this situation we often will think, well, I'm doing a mostly good thing. So it's okay for me to, to, to keep some of that for myself. And so the key to what they did, though, is, is not just in the keeping back, understanding the key to what they did is in the original language. In the original Greek, it says he kept back part of the money. The, the original Greek word, I always like to throw an original Greek word or a, or a fancy theological term in every week just to show that I'm a Bible nerd and um, things like that. But, but the original Greek word here is nosphizo, nosphizo. And so, nesphizo doesn't just mean to, to keep a portion to yourself, it literally means to embezzle, to steal, to pilfer for one's own benefit. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's not a word that's often used in the New Testament, but elsewhere it's, it's translated because of its context, just straight up steal. There's a dishonesty, a, a lie wrapped up with it, and a selfish gain wrapped up with it. You don't just, you know, you might tithe 10% and keep your 90%, that's okay. But this isn't just that. That's, that's a, a, a different thing altogether. This is lying, seeking to deceive on purpose for one's own benefit. They kept back, they nofizoed a portion of the money for their own benefit. See, the thing is, it wasn't really about the money and this is confirmed in, in Peter's response. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself, same word, you've nephizoed for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings but to God. And so the point is, it's not about the money. It's about they presented the money to the apostles. They came before Peter, the, the, the leader of the church at the time, and said, here is all the money we, we received for the field. They wanted the glory, the honor, the, the raising up that Barnabas received in the church. They wanted the notoriety in the church that Barnabas received, that these other people received for, for making this sacrifice for the sake of the poor and needy. It's not about the money. In fact, we're not told how big the portion they held back was. We're not told whether they held back 1% or 99% or 50% or 25%. We're not told how much money was involved at all. We're not told how big the property was. We're, we're not told any of that because the point is it's not about the money. The point is that they sought to deceive the church, they sought to lie to the church to receive honour and glory like Barnabas had, but at the same time to keep the money for their own use. The issue is the lie and the deception. The issue is the sin of lying, but also the issue is the sinful desire to seek advancement, to seek recognition, to, to seek fame through deceptive means.
And so Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter, they lied to the church, but Peter points it to a deeper issue. If we, if we lie to the church, we're, we're lying to the Holy Spirit, we're lying to God. And so it was never about the money, it was about the deception and the lies, and, and, and so that was the issue here. And Peter says, in the midst of that, he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? How is it that Satan has filled your heart? And I just want to touch on this idea of Satan filling his heart because you may be familiar with the phrase, well, the devil made me do it. (laughs) And so the, the question that might arise for us is, well, if the devil made them do it, why was it them that dropped dead? If the devil made them do it, then, then why are they judged so harshly? Satan has filled your heart. Uh, the issue here is not that Satan took control of their bodies. The issue here was that Satan had sowed temptation so deeply in their heart they no longer chose to resist it. See, this is what Satan does to believers. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God speaking to Cain, who's a little bit cranky about um, his offering not being accepted like his brother Abel's was, and God said to him, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is sorry, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So even back in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, he has said sin, not Satan, but Satan's the tempter of the, of the brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. Here, even in, back in Genesis chapter 4, God's saying, sin's desire is to have you. It's not just something out there that we can choose to pursue or not, its desire is to consume you. Satan's desire is to fill you with temptation to sin, but God says you must rule over it. See, Ananias and Sapphira were filled with temptation from Satan, but it's their responsibility because they did not rule over it. Uh, Peter himself wrote to the church, and in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter's saying that this this temptation, this desire from Satan to fill you with the desire to sin is something that believers throughout the world are undergoing. This kind of suffering, this temptation to sin is part of being a follower of Jesus. In fact, the enemy, the devil, is not trying to tempt unbelievers to sin because he's already got them. He's not trying to make them fall he maybe is, you know, trying to keep them from, from, from Jesus. But, but he's attacking, he's targeting his attacks at those who believe in Jesus to cause them to stumble and fall. Peter experienced his own temptation from Satan. Jesus said to, to Peter before his, his, his trial and crucifixion, he said that, that the devil has asked to sift you, Peter. But I've prayed that afterwards you would be restored. Peter's writing from a perspective of knowing what it's like to say, I am going to follow you to death, Jesus, and then in the next breath deny him because of the temptation that Satan filled him with, the sifting. And so as in Genesis chapter 4, Cain was told to rule over sin, to not excuse any behavior because you were tempted because the devil filled you with it Uh, peter tells the whole church to stand firm resist the enemy's temptation because it should be an expected part of being a follower of jesus see the fall of ananias and sapphira was nephizo embezzling stealing keeping something back while seeking glory for themselves seeking both financial gain and, and recognition, uh, I was talking with Carl this week about the message, he said they wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. But the thing is, we're, we're all tempted to nefizo. We're all tempted to, 
to act like we're doing more, being more, giving more than we are to get glory and recognition. We're, we're all tempted to, to tweak the numbers a little bit or tweak the truth a little bit for a, either financial gain or, or, or gain in, in people's opinions of us. This, this temptation is something that we all face. A few months ago, probably six months ago, I was talking to, to Steve and he was at a, a crucial moment with his um, car yard and things were going well, but he just needed a bit of balloon funds to be able to buy cars before he sold them. And, and so he was applying for a loan of $20,000, uh, like a, a, a bridging kind of line of credit. Um, I'm not a business person. Um, and, and so uh, he's, the advisor that was working with him, I don't know if it was from the bank or from someone, but said, I'm, I'm pretty sure you will get this line of credit for $20,000, but, but just don't tell the bank it's for a car yard. And so there's the temptation to nefizo. The temptation for Steve to go, okay, well, well, I'm not really lying, I'm just not divulging all the information. Uh, I, I, I can just be a little bit dishonest here and because, you know, I tithe to the church, I give to the church, and this isn't Steve's words, this is me, you know, Ben in Steve's head, but I give to the church and so the more my business prospers, the more I can give to the church and, and I'm confident I won't lose this money and, and, and the temptation to nefizo, to, to, to advance through a little bit of dishonesty is there. Now the end of that story is Steve then, despite that counsel from a financial advisor um, to do that, decided that Integrity was more important than gain and was blessed by uh, a brother in Christ and a literal brother-in-law, I think, with, with um, what he needed to, to get through that critical moment in the business. A week ago, um, Carl, who, who um, if you don't know, works part-time for the church and um, focused on community engagement, but he also, in a voluntary sense, does a lot of our does all of our putting podcasts on and now he's doing the the version apps and, and, and stuff that all happens on a computer. Um, Carl and Alex's computers um, in their house all decided to die. And so, so Carl set out, he said, well, I need to get a new computer and he set out to lease a computer. And Carl told me that the thought in his head was, well, if I can put this as Alex's work computer then I can write that off as tax and, and that'll make it a little bit more affordable for us. And so the temptation is, well, it's for ministry, it's for the church, this computer's going to be to grow the kingdom. And it just takes a little bit of deception and then we can afford it a little bit better. And Carl was telling me, though, that he was, he was just sharing this thought with, with a brother in the church here and, 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 and that brother said... I don't think you should do that. I think that's just illegal. And so the end of that story is Carl chose not to do that and I'll let Carl tell you later the, the testimony of what God did in, in not just response to that, not that Carl earned blessing, but just the affirmation from God about, about choosing to do what was right there. But there's a temptation to just tweak it a little bit, just to, to bend the truth a little bit because, well, it's, it's mostly a good thing we're doing. Well, I would suggest that that is the enemy, that is sin seeking to devour us. In my own life, there, there's been many occasions of this temptation and, and I can't think of any in particular that I've, I've gone the wrong way with, but I'm sure there have been times where I've, I've, uh, uh, I've given in to that temptation. And, uh, but sometimes it's as insidious as as of going to buy some stuff for church, or, you know, just because I'm the one who's here most of the time, I end up doing a lot of the, the purchasing and, and, and while I'm doing that, I might buy myself a drink while I'm there. And even at that kind of $3 level, the temptation is there to go, well, that's mostly for the church, I'll just put that request in for that reimbursement and, and it's all good, it's, you know, it's only a little 3%. Um, How's that really going to make a difference to the church budget? And, but but I feel convicted that, that that's where it can sometimes begin for us. It's the, it's the Coke and then it's the, the, the lunch and then it's the, it, it can grow from there. The enemy will, will know 
where to get at us. So we don't have to pursue sin, it's pursuing us. And, and so Peter would say, stand firm. He would say, resist it. And I'd also encourage you to confess it. See, temptation is not a sin, but confessing that temptation, that's what happened with Carl and sharing his thoughts around that, where, where thank God, a, another brother in Christ could say, actually, I don't think you should do it. And Carl goes, oh, yeah, that's right. And so if we confess the temptation, then that gives us strength to do it. And so Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? It's not that Satan took control. It's, it's not that Satan, you know, turned Ananias into like a, um, a you know, computer widget thing that just does what Satan tells him to do. It's not a possession. The, 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 the other way to phrase it would be, how did you let it get that far? How did you let Satan fill you so much with temptation that you gave into it? There's an old Casting Crowns song um, that says it's a, so, it's a slow fade. When you give yourself away, it's, when we give up faithfulness to Jesus, it's usually not a moment where we decide... I'm going to have that affair where we decide I'm going to embezzle nefizo that money. I'm going to, to, to glorify myself through dishonesty. It's not usually a big moment. It begins with letting Satan giving in to temptation to sin and bigger and bigger and bigger. So Peter's comments really mean that line. How did you let it get so far? And so Ananias and Sapphira sought glory and fame through, through presenting themselves as giving all they had to the church while still keeping some money back um, to, to financially advance themselves. And then they dropped dead. And so Ananias and Sapphira both dropped dead on the spot, one after the other. Uh, this is a shocking moment. This is a moment that uh, causes confusion for, for many Bible readers, for many people of faith. It, it causes a lot of questions to arise in us. How does this fit with the gospel of grace and forgiveness? Why did God make such a big deal of this one sin? Why doesn't he make such a big deal of it now? I'm sure you can think of, of, of famous stories and perhaps less famous stories of where people have, you know, famous Christian leaders have lied about tax returns, have embezzled money, who, who've done wrong things and, and haven't seemed to have dropped dead. So it's not just why did God make such a big deal of it then, but why doesn't he seem to, to, to make a big deal of it now? This, this moment of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead is shocking. I'm not going to pretend to, to be able to answer all the questions you have about it this morning because I still have questions. I may not give you less questions at the end of this morning. You maybe go home with a different set of questions to what you came with. We can exchange that and toss that around and I'm always open to chat more about it. But I want to suggest that part of the issue is that, that this lie, not just in general, but this lie to the church was a threat to the character and the integrity of the church at such a formative stage. That, that this was a crucial moment for the church of the church discovering who it was and as, as we go on in the weeks to come, there's still big questions for the church to answer about who can be in Gentiles. Do the Gentiles have to follow the Jewish law? Uh, is there a level of sin that's too much? There's still big questions that the church is wrestling with. And, and so this moment of, 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 in the context of people giving their possessions and being honoured in the church, this moment of deception of Nefizo is a, is a threat to the integrity of the church at a formative stage. This deception is the cancer of worldliness corrupting the DNA of the church. 
If this is allowed to grow, if this is allowed to persist, then the church very quickly in its first months of existence becomes no different to the world. Becomes no different to, to the culture around it where, where deception and lies are the way of advancement in the world, where, where the, the, the corporate ladder is, a, is about just pushing other people down to get to the top. If this is allowed to take root then the nature of the entire church becomes very sick and unhealthy very quickly. And so we're praying for Steve and his operation and, and if you've got a tumour in your body that's cancerous, the doctors will act swiftly to remove it so that that doesn't destroy the health of the whole body. And so part of the answer of, of, of why did Ananias and Sapphira drop dead, why was such a, a big statement made by God about this kind of sin uh, so early in the church is it is God saying this cancer of deception of lies, this cancer of, of worldly deceptive gain is not what the church is about. And so we're going to remove that right here and now. See, ultimately, the DNA of the church is, is intended to be completely other than the DNA of the world. In Romans 12, 2, a, a, a famous verse, Paul says to the church, don't conform any longer to the ways of the world, but be transformed, be something other than what the world is. And so this, this deception of Ananias and Sapphira is an attempt by Satan through them to plant in the very heart of the church worldliness. Paul puts it elsewhere. Paul describes the nature of the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27. And this is about how husbands should treat their wives. But, but in it, in the midst of that, and we sometimes miss it because the, the, the message of this passage is really about how husbands should treat their wives. In it is, is how Jesus desires the church to be. And so it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Holy means set apart, it means other than. To make her holy, cleansing by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy, again, set apart and blameless. That is who the church is called to be. The bottom line of this story is that the church, you and I, us, the church together, are called to be something other than the world. In Jesus' world, in the world, but not of it. We're called to be something different, and that something different is to be radiantly beautiful, to be without stain or wrinkle, that's not about aging, that's a reference to the blemishes of sin without blemish but holy and blameless. And so that's something that Jesus' sacrifice makes possible for the church, that, that we can't be that in our own right, that Jesus washes us with his word, that through his sacrifice he, he makes it possible for us to be that, but, but we can't lose in those words the, the, the sense of who Jesus wants us to be. The church is called to be set apart. I do believe that the, the central message of the New Testament, in fact, the entire scriptures, is that God is gracious and forgiving. As Paul and, and his adversaries wrestle with what that means, some would suggest that that then just means sin is okay. To which Paul says in Romans, should we just go on sinning so that grace might increase? He says, by no means. See, sometimes we, we, we put holiness, righteous living and repentance at odds with the gospel of grace. But they are not dichotomies, they are not separated, they are one and the same thing. Through grace we're enabled to be the church that God calls us to be. At no point in the message of grace does it make sin and pursuing a life of sin okay. At, at no point 
in the message of, of grace and forgiveness through the cross does it make giving in to the temptation and allowing sin to devour you a good thing. And so the death of Ananias and Sapphira make that statement from God, this is not welcome in my church. And so in a sense, it's, it's a, a flood-like statement. In, in the days of Noah, we're told the world was wicked and there was this one man who was righteous. And, and so God told Noah to build an ark and, and, and God flooded the entire earth so that the wicked and evil generation would die out. That was God's statement that, that this kind of world is not what I am after. That sin and wickedness and violence is not what I created the world for. And so the flood was this statement that, that this is not okay, but it, we know it wasn't the solution to sin and wickedness and violence. We know that not very long after in the story of Genesis, if you're familiar with it, the same cycle happens over and over again and, and the scriptures lead us to being the answer being Jesus. But the flood stands as a statement to humanity that this is not okay. And so the death of Ananias and Sapphira stands like a, a flood-like statement in the story of the church. It's a statement from God that, saying that this corruption within the church is not okay. This deception, this nephizo, this seeking human glory at the same time as seeking financial gain, this seeking for self and presenting it as sacrificial giving is not okay in the church. It's a flood-like statement, but... Just as the flood didn't solve the problem of sin, everybody who sins against the church dropping dead isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. And so we might think, well, why don't people just drop dead today when they sin against the church? Some of us may wish they did. <laughs> and some of us are very glad that they don't because the reality is at some level this is all of our stories. Because we all have that temptation to present ourselves as at least a little bit more giving than we really are. At least a little bit more holy than we really are. At least a little bit more dedicated than perhaps we really are. And maybe that's just me, but I'm grateful that everybody who so his deception doesn't always drop dead. But at the same time, we shouldn't treat this kind of sin as any less serious because we don't see it happening over and over and over and over again. That this statement, just as, as, as Jesus is the answer to sin in the world, but the flood was a statement that sin was not okay, this, this statement of Ananias and Sapphira's death is not the answer it's not the solution but but it's a statement to us that we should not accept either in our own lives or in the life of our own church lies and deception and and seeking gain through dishonest means this is a statement that not just even in the context of grace but i would say especially in the context of grace we should take sin Seriously, we should stand firm and resist the temptation from the enemy. And so how, how, how should we respond? I mean, apart from standing firm, and, and how do we stand? How should we respond to this story? Because this story wasn't just written down because it happened that lots of stuff happened in the life of the early church just as we're told of jesus uh, life story we're told that if we if everything he did was written down the sky wouldn't be a big enough piece of paper um, if it was made of paper to write down everything jesus did and i believe the same is true as the early church because it goes from just one person to this exploding movement of kingdom growth that that the story of acts isn't the story of everything that happened 
It's the story of, of what God, through Luke, wanted us to know. And, and so this story is not just written down because it happened. It's written down because God wanted us to know it and respond to it. And so how should we respond to this story? Well, the initial response, uh, we're told in Acts chapter 5, is that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The, the initial response was great fear. And I would suggest that that's the appropriate response. If people deceive and sin against the church and they drop dead, then I would suggest that the appropriate response in that moment is fear, but I would also suggest the appropriate response for you and I today, thousands of years later, is still fear. But not an anxious, distressed fear, but a reverent fear. Throughout the scripture, we're told to, to fear the Lord. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, 28 to 31 says, Don't fear men who can take your life, but fear God who can take your soul in hell. But then the very next words are, A sparrow will not fall to the ground apart from the Father's will, and he knows the hair on your head. You're so much more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus affirms the message that God is the one that we should fear above all else, but at the same breath saying God is, is loving. And he cares for you. And so fear is the appropriate response, but but not distressed, anxious fear, but reverent fear that leads to worship, repentance, and righteousness. To to unpack this as we we finish with this, I I want to lead you to Acts chapter 19. And there's, there's another story, another refining moment in the life of the early church where the response of all who hear about it is fear. And so in Acts chapter 19... Verses 13 to 16, uh, we're told this story in Ephesus. Uh, and, and Ephesus was a, was a center of, of what we would perhaps call black magic today or witchcraft of, of magical textbooks and incantations and, um, and things like that. And so we're told that in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, and so we should read here that they're, they're Jewish of descent, but but uh, they're not practicing uh, the true Jewish faith if they're behaving like this. Um, Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And so they're saying in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. They're saying, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I've seen that there's power in this name. We're, we're in a context where, where magical incantations happen. And so we've seen that this name is more powerful than any other magic word. It's more powerful than Alakazam or anything like that. And so we're going to try this one out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And, and so this is a story of people apart from relationship with Jesus misusing the name of Jesus. And so Acts chapter 19 verse 17 tells us of the response. It says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. They were all seized with fear. But here we're told a little bit more about what this fear produced in them. We're told it's it's not a distressed, anxious fear. It's a fear that leads to worship that leads to repentance and leads to righteous living. In, in, in verse 17 it says, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. And, and so that the Greek for, 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 for honour here literally means magnified or glorified, made bigger. And so the initial response of fear led them not to run from Jesus, but to honour his name, to treat it appropriately, but to magnify it, to glory it, to to worship Jesus. And so our response to the story of Ananias and Sapphira should be fear, a, a reverent fear of who God is, but not that leads us to run from him, but to run towards him and worship the name of Jesus. The next verse, verse 18, tells us, that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. 
what they had done, meaning sins. And so the response of fear led them to worship. Pardon me. Led them to worship. But it also led them towards confession and repentance. It led them to take seriously who God is and who God was calling them to be. And, And so they came openly and confessed, repented of the things they had done. And so the appropriate response to the story of Ananias and Sapphira is is fear, but fear that leads to repentance. And so if you don't have someone in your life that that you can repent to, confess to, we we repent to God and we confess to God, but, but... we're told in the scriptures to confess our sins to one another as well. And, and so if you don't have someone in your life that, that you can do that with, I want to encourage you to, to find someone. Find a, a friend, a brother or a sister in Christ. It's always good to be the same gender as you, um, but that's not an exclusive rule. But if we're confessing sins, that, that helps. Find someone that you can be completely open and honest with so that you can openly confess your sins, that that you can take seriously who God is and confess them. A great context for some of this is sometimes a a life group, and I I gave life group a a plug last week, and I'm giving it a plug this week, and next week we're going to have opportunity to, to, if you're not in a life group, to sign up, and we want to create some new life groups, but, but... the practice of confession we have here is neither the, the Catholic model of everyone comes to the pastor or priest to confess their sins or a, 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 you get to, you know, we have a testimony time and a confession time and, and we confess on the mic to the whole church. But, but I want to find you, to encourage you to either through a life group or a personal relationship to find someone to be accountable to. We should respond to this story with fear, reverence that leads to worship, that leads to confession and repentance. And and finally, our response should be uh, a fear that leads to righteousness or righteous living. And so verse 19 says, A number who had practiced sorcery or magic brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's that's 50,000 days of pay a.k.a. a lot of money. And, and so the response of, of fear led them to worship, it led them to confess and repent, but it also led them to say, I'm going to remove from my life the objects of sin. And I'm sure there were some of them that, that the enemy said, well, couldn't you just sell them? That, that temptation to nephizo, to seek this glory for, I've gotten rid of all my books of sorcery, I'm going to live righteous, but I also profited from it. That temptation, I'm sure, was there, but, but we're told they burned it publicly. This is not a contoning of public book burnings of every book that may have a line that's slightly anti-Christian in it, we're going to build a bonfire and burn it. This is a removing from their own lives the objects which lead them to sin so that they might live and lived out righteousness that they did it publicly as a public statement of that that they burned them so that the temptation was cut off as much as possible to go back to that and so I don't know what that looks like for you but uh, it may be you know a book burning I doubt it but it might be cutting yourself off consciously taking seriously who God is and calls you to be and cutting yourself away from those things that lead you to sin. Whether it's pornography or a particular TV show that that sows kind of some thoughts into your mind that lead you to sin, whether it's uh, other kinds of temptation, whether it's alcohol or or, or, or whatever it is... uh, a response of fear to this story should lead us to go to respond with a cutting ourselves off from those things that lead us to sin. And so the appropriate response to this story is we understand it properly. Not that every question is round up, not that I expect you to leave here this morning without going, but what about this and what about that? 
but I want to suggest that an appropriate response to this story is fear. Is to fear the Lord our God with a, a reverence, not a distressed, anxious fear, but a reverence that, that leads us to worship Him. That leads us to live a lifestyle of repentance and confession, a, a continuous turning away from sin and back to God. And to live a lifestyle of seeking to live out righteousness. Not that we would earn God's favour through righteousness, that is a free gift through Jesus, but that we might be who He has called us and desires us to be. That we might be not just individuals, but be the church that Paul describes in Ephesus. A, a radiant church, spotless, blameless, holy. We respond with worship, repentance and righteousness. And so this final song is going to be our, our closing prayer this morning, uh, that, that we would be made clean. But I want to, I talked about the ark being a, being a or the flood being a statement like Ananias and Sapphira. And so I want to kind of loop back to the story of Noah. And I want to encourage us as a church here, Yes Community Baptist Church, to be a church like Noah. We're told of Noah that, he was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. We're told the world that he lived in was like this. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So I want to leave us this morning with a call that not through works that we might receive God's favour, that has been a free gift of God's grace, but that that grace might empower us through reverent fear, through worship, through repentance, through seeking to live a righteous life, that, that grace might empower us to be in this day, in this town, in this nation, in this world, a church that stands out like Noah, a righteous church, blameless amongst the people of our community, a church that walks faithfully with God, even if the world is corrupt and filled with violence. Let us be, may we be, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that church. In Jesus' name. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love you to become a part of the Yas Baptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.